have an exciting announcement. After 12 or 13 years of living in New Jersey and running back to the backyard every time it starts to rain to collect the cushions on our deck furniture and hide them in the garage or in our house to keep them from getting soaked, we now have a deck cushion bin. Guys, I've arrived. This has got to be near the top of suburban excellence. And made in America, I think, in all of its plastic glory, I managed to not put it together correctly. Now, it may be the fact that I bought it around 9.15 p.m., just before Lowe's closed, and it was dark, and both I and my helper, my wife, were tired, and we valued our marriage more than getting this thing put together correctly. It may have been, though, that the directions weren't altogether clear, that you had to hold the sides together as you slipped the pieces into place. Whatever it was, we can see that perhaps I may be able to follow the scriptures very well, but directions from Lowe's on a plastic deck cushion bin, not so much. I think just as our owner's manuals for things as trivial or as silly as this deck cushion bin that I'm discussing, or whether it's a car, or whether it's a procedure for work or for school, they're all corrupted because they often either don't provide accurate guidance or we don't read them accurately. But James, however, provides us with the most accurate guidance and the means to read it correctly in his, in his letter to us this morning. We are the first fruits of a new creation. We are members of the 12 tribes of the new covenant dispersion, awaiting our Lord's coming and called and working towards evidencing that new world in our lives. And so we need heavenly wisdom and we need James to show us what that looks like and how we are to do it. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's word as we look at heavenly wisdom this morning, beginning at James 13 through 18. This is God's eternal word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So far in God's word, let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you that they are indeed 
a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's better than even the best manual we could get. Thank you that you've not left us, Lord, to read it independently, but you've given us a pastor, you've given us elders to teach us God's word. You've given us a community of the brothers and the sisters who will sing to us and admonish us and counsel us and encourage us with the scriptures. Lord, we're not left alone, for you've given us, through the apostolic testimony, you've given us the written word, and you've given us the Holy Spirit, which will take the meaning on the page and bring it down into our vile hearts and cleanse us, as we've just been singing about. Lord, thank you that your word comes with a promise that it will never return void without accomplishing the purposes for which you send it. And so send your spirit and show forth your word this morning to do its work in this congregation and in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's heavenly wisdom. That's the title of my sermon this morning. James doesn't use the word heaven. He calls it wisdom from above. But in James's geographic world, the above realm is where the Heavenly Father lives, James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is the place where we're to ask God, who gives generously, if you lack wisdom. In James chapter 1, verse 5. So it's heavenly wisdom. It's wisdom from above. And in James's geography, the, the other realm is the earth or the world. And this is the place of your pilgrimage, as Elder Will Bausch was praying in his prayer. This is the place where you're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's where you, as a little beacon of light, a, 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 a trophy of God's grace, a, a shining testimony of the world to come. James calls you the first fruits of the new creation in 118. So you're a little slice of heaven in this world. You're to be in the world, Jesus said, but not of the world. So while you walk on the earth, you're not to be earthly minded. You need heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, wisdom not from this realm, but from another place. Wisdom that is characterizing the world as it's becoming, not the world that we made. And so we see three things, three truths about this wisdom, this heavenly wisdom. First of all, it's essential in our community. Look at verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James 3.13, the verse I just read, connects with James 3.1 as a, as a continuous thought. James 3.1 says in your Bibles, let not many of you be teachers. So in this new section of James, he's giving instruction about the kind of teacher that should be presiding or leading or teaching in the community. James is cautioning against 
people becoming teachers in the church, and the reason he gives, the caution he gives, is because the ones who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Yet teachers are needed. This is a pilgrim community. It's the community of the Lord in a world that is often hostile and negative towards our faith. The same world that crucified our Lord Jesus Christ, those same impulses, those same self-centered, idolatrous, violent passions are still present and are still the way that Christians are treated today. That's because the world with its priorities, its values, its systems, its structures, Scripture tells us is passing away, all under the burden and curse of sin. And a new world, a new way of life, is beginning and coming someday fully very soon. This new world will be one in which the righteousness of God is established forevermore. But as we saw last week, now in this world, the church is like a ship that is blown on the seas of worldly compromise and change where we're faced with fierce opposition, storm, a tornado, a hurricane of enmity against God. So we need a teacher, a man whose hand on the tiller or on the rudder is firm and can guide not only his own ship, his own life, the lives of all of God's people through the stormy passage until we arrive at our promised rest, the haven of rest, Hebrews chapter 6. Teachers are needed in the church who are able, as James did, to guide the body of Christ as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's James 1.1. That's how he describes himself. And that's what every teacher is or ought to be, a servant of the Lord. But where are we to find such teachers? How are we to know how to choose them? Nothing less than a wise and understanding leader, James 3.13, will be up to the task. So my point is, having a wise and understanding leader is essential to the community. Having leaders with heavenly wisdom is essential to the community. There are many reasons it's essential, one one of which is when, when someone goes astray, which is one of the reasons James is writing this letter is to prevent us from going astray as a church. When individual members of the flock go astray and start following after paths that are unhealthy or unholy, a wise and understanding leader will pursue that one. Someone with, without experience, without the knowledge of God, without the knowledge of God's word, without the s- spiritual insight and wisdom to apply God's word, won't do it. He won't be up to the task. Also, when conflicts arise within the church, threatening to divide the body of Christ, it takes real wisdom You know, wisdom, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 1, 7, 8, and 9, begins with the fear of God. So we don't need just kind of somebody that's a glad-handing politician, good with people. So often we appoint leaders in the church who are accomplished in their secular vocations. So 
bankers or lawyers or doctors or teachers or men that work with their hands. They're good at what they do in the world, probably as good at leading in the church. No. <laughs> a, it's just a different animal. Leading the body of Christ is a different animal. But it requires different skills. And so often what makes you successful in your, in your nine to five is not the kind of success that's required in the family of God. What does this phrase come from, wise and understanding? It has the feeling of a of almost a saying, and it is, I think. I think James is actually, if, if not quoting, he's echoing the criteria for leadership that Moses gave in the Old Testament. Let's take a look at that. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1. My Bible, beginning at verse 9, says, At that time, Deuteronomy 1, verse 9, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you, as in to uphold you, to lead you, by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's a reference to the Abrahamic promise. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and of your strife? Verse 13, choose for yourselves, choose for your tribes, what? Wise, understanding, and experienced men. And I will appoint them as your heads. So James is saying, in the new community, the 12 tribes of the dispersion, the same thing is needed as in the Old Testament. All these beautiful redeemed sheep who were spread about the ancient Near East and all the environs of the exile, that's what the dispersion means geographically. But it also means every single redeemed child of God who is awaiting the new world. That's what the dispersion means or the diaspora means spiritually. They need wise and understanding elders. That's what's needed. And this is repeated if you turn a page over in Deuteronomy in chapter 4. Two pages. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. In verse 6 of Deuteronomy 4. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that 
has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what nation, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Having heavenly wisdom is essential for the community. Without it, we have no leaders who can guide us. Without it, we have no wisdom to guide ourselves because in Deuteronomy 4, this wisdom and understanding isn't just a feature of the leadership of the church. It's the treasury, it's the inheritance of the entire congregation. God didn't give the Ten Commandments and all the laws in Israel to just the elders. He gave the Ten Commandments to all the people. It's a treasure. And the reason it's a treasure is because receiving the word makes you wise and understanding. Receiving heaven's wisdom, which is what the law is, God gave it from heaven, and Moses took it on tablets from the mouth of God to the people. It's heavenly wisdom. Receiving heaven's wisdom makes us wise and understanding. According to Moses, who I think James had in mind when he issued this challenge, when he said, is there anyone who is wise and understanding among you? According to Moses, the wisdom and understanding that is found in a godly leader generally, specifically in elders and pastors as well, it all comes from the scriptures, from the law of God. It's the Bible that makes a man wise and understanding. The first point then is heavenly wisdom is essential for the community. You need heavenly wisdom so that you can decide who is a faithful teacher in the church. And that's a job that you have that's a job that God has given you. And it's, it's a providential timing that we as a church are, are in a season, an extended season, of choosing leaders, choosing elders and deacons. It's a treasure and a privilege for you to do that. And you cannot do it if you don't have the word and then know the word. It's essential for the community. So we're talking about some qualities or features of heavenly wisdom, and not only is it required for the community or essential, it's the fruit of God's word. And here I want to refer again to my passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. This is Deuteronomy 4 verse 5 again as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Now, check this out. Keep them and do them. Well, what's that? That's your wisdom. That's your understanding. It's the keeping and following of the scriptures that is wisdom. You see that? It's not just this. 
It's not knowing the Bible. It's keeping the Bible. It's not just learning the Scriptures. It's living the Scriptures. So you don't become wise and understanding simply by reading, but by reading and doing. I've heard wisdom defined as the skill of godly living. My version is the art and craft of godly living. Maybe the art and science, because there's a an indefinite quality to it. You can't pin it down. And yet there's some certain very predictable things about living in the ways of the Lord. The church needs not just wise and understanding teachers, but the whole body of the people needs to be wise and understanding. You need to be in your scriptures if we are to be the people of God's design. I've said this before, and it bears repeating. Reading the Bible is part of what it means to be a follower of the Lord. The point here is that heaven's wisdom is the fruit of God's word. This is my second point. So fruit, all the trees are blooming, the flowers are out. So you've got the roots in the dirt, got the green or the, the stem that comes up or the trunk, the branches and the leaves, and then the flowers. And what comes out of the flower? Fruit. Heaven's wisdom is the fruit of God's word. That means God's word is at the base of this thing. It's the, it's the tree, it's the soil, it's the trunk, it's the branch the flower and what comes out at the very end of that growth process heavenly wisdom so the sequence is heaven sends the word you read and immerse yourself in the word you lay hold of the word you learn to love the word it challenges you it shapes your thinking you get engaged in a dialogue with it or arguing with it and and you start to follow it haltingly and imperfectly but consistently and steadily and perseveringly and what comes out of the end but the fruit is heaven's wisdom because wisdom is keeping and doing the word it's a little bit counter to what we think we think we need wisdom in order to do the word but what scripture says is when you do the word you get wisdom That's what the scriptures say. And we tend to look for wisdom everywhere but the word. And sometimes in God's sense of humor or his mercy, he'll leave little breadcrumbs in, say, a book of philosophy or in, say, an inspiring talk or in some sort of common sense advice that you get from a friend. It's not the same. Heaven's wisdom is the fruit of God's word. This is my second point. By obeying God's word, the Bible, you gain wisdom and understanding. 
But let's be clear, this isn't just obedience, you know. Do the Bible, do the Bible, do the Bible. That's funny. It doesn't work. See, the Bible itself, Scripture itself, is a relational document. Scripture is the book of the covenant. And a covenant is God's embracing you. And you, by His mercy and grace, embracing God. And so, Scripture is a story about how God has involved Himself in your life relationally and in a loving manner. And so, reading Scripture is a relational exercise in which you refresh your love relationship with the God who has redeemed you and saved you from the awful consequences of your sin. And you get to discover how you can more consistently express that sort of lifestyle, leaving behind and leaving aside your former manner of life. God in the Bible has drawn near to us. Heavenly wisdom is the result of you discovering that and being changed. And as heavenly wisdom passes through the prism of your changed heart, do you know what a prism is? It's a triangular piece of glass which when white light passes through it at just the right angle, what do you get? A rainbow. And it's amazing that in the light that we see is, is actually a, an entire library of light. Reds and oranges and yellows. So as heaven's wisdom passes through the prism of your changed heart and life, it breaks out into seven colors or seven characteristics which James gives us here. We know the heart's important in our text because back in James chapter 3, Fourteen, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And we're told in James chapter 4 that we need to purify our hearts, James 4 verse 8. So it's, it's the heart which becomes a kind of cleansed prism for wisdom to shine through our heart from the word shining through the prism of our heart, breaking out into this sort of spectrum of beautiful virtues that we're going to look at in just a moment. God's word produces the fruit of wisdom, and wisdom then produces a fruit of a changed life in at least seven different ways. Now that's my third point. Heaven's wisdom creates a new way of life. We've seen this morning that heaven's wisdom is essential for Christian community, both for leaders and the members of the congregation who are called upon to 
look around and select godly teachers according to this criteria, that they are wise and understanding. I've also shown you that it's the fruit of God's word. Wisdom, in turn, produces a whole new way of life. Heavenly wisdom creates a new way of life. It's a new way of life. When, when water or light shines through a muddy lens, a dirty filter, what comes out the other side is gross and bland. But when God does a, a, a supernatural work of grace in our lives and he cleanses our hearts, James 1.18, the heart of this book, by his will, he causes you to be born again by the word of truth so that you might be a kind of first fruits amongst his new creation. Well, when that happens, something supernatural changes you. It doesn't come from within you. It's heaven's gift. It's heaven's work. It's by God's will. He sends heavenly wisdom whenever anyone asks for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, James is saying that's most of us. So he's describing our natural state. When God sends wisdom, he changes you and gives you a whole new way of doing things. A new set of skills. He, he opens up a whole field of options that you hadn't seen before. You're enabled to have a, a whole new way of life. It's yours for the asking because he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. But what does it look like? Well, the text mentions seven positive things, but it also mentions seven negative things. Let's take a look at, at the list that's before us. First of all, the text mentions bitter jealousy in verse 14. Bitterness alludes back to James 3.11 because a spring cannot pour forth from the same opening both fr fresh and bitter or salty water. Bitter jealousy refers to strong negative feelings that you have towards someone else, often towards their accomplishments. Why did he get promoted? Why did she get chosen? Why didn't I get called on? Two, selfish ambition. This refers to unworthy means in order to promote your own interest at the expense of someone else. I think of stepping over people and stepping on people to get ahead. Yes, that happens in the church. Falsehood in verse 14 is uh, do not boast and lie against the truth. Falsehood or lying against the truth is the kind of life you lead should not betray the message of salvation that you have received. You should not lie against the truth because the truth is the thing that has caused you to be born again as the first fruits of God's creation. So jealousy, selfish ambition, falsehood, number four, earthly. Earthly pertains to what is characteristic of this fallen world, and I've described that in my sermon this morning already, Philippians 3.19. Paul refers to those who are earthly as saying their God is their belly. Their mind is set on earthly things. But Paul says that's not true of you. Your citizenship is in heaven. So fifth, then, unspiritual can also mean natural. Unspiritual, not spiritual, James means natural, earthly, worldly. 
natural in the Bible is in contrast to what is characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Unspiritual doesn't necessarily mean physical because God has redeemed you body and soul. The spiritual part has been made holy and your bodies have been made holy. That point is made very well in 1 Corinthians 15. No, what unspiritual means is unredeemed, whether body or soul. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 puts it very well. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural person there means the unspiritual person. Why? Because they are foolishness to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So four earthly, five unspiritual, six demonic. There are a number of references to Satan in James, the enemy of your souls. Here, earthly, unspiritual, natural wisdom is described as demonic, probably because Satan is the god of this world. He's the temporary despot or anarchist who is ruling. And so demonic wisdom is wisdom that derives from the framework of the God of this world rather than the God of the new world which is coming. The seventh negative virtue here is disorder in every vile practice. You know, James has used disorder already when he talked about the waves of the sea which are blown and tossed by the wind And that's a description of the unstable man or woman. Disordered or unstable. It's characterized by someone who has divided loyalties, one thought about God and the other thought about yourself. Boy, I know how that feels. So the net result of all of these negative virtues is disorder. And so in our membership vows, we promise to pursue the peace and the purity of the church. We're saying we're going to help make this congregation, James wants all the churches that are reading this, including ours, to make this fellowship of believers ordered, an orderly fellowship. So uh, John Choi asked for someone to help clean up after church. It could be as simple as that. That's a a job we have trouble filling. I I don't know why it's not so popular. Clean up after church. Hmm. i got to think about that one. But it's a small instance of how the fellowship, the congregation is ordered. And there are lots of things like this. There's microphones and communion and fans turned on. And I think, I don't know, Barry, did you pull the, the chains on all these fans this week? That took some ordering of his schedule. And then there's other kinds of order, like Matthew 18 order. That's when someone sins against you. You you go to that person and you talk it through. Makes for a peaceful, orderly assembly. But it's not the order that you think. And so when he says disorder, he's not saying that your lives is in total chaos. Maybe you mow your grass with the best of them. Maybe your car is tuned up and the oil's changed. Maybe you've got new wipers on that thing. Maybe you show up to work on time and 
work over time and you've got a savings account and everything's good in your life. But you know, that sort of order is as good as it is, isn't necessarily the order that's talking about, that, that James is talking about here. We're talking about the order of the new world. It's not always intuitive. We need heaven's wisdom. Let me jump to the positives. The seven negatives make it clear what the new way of life does not look like. What it does look like is, first of all, pure. The Greek word here is hagne. I think we get the English woman's name Agnes from this word. It refers to what is good, right, and true. It's something without blemish. James has mentioned this idea when he's talked about pure religion in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, which is acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. Pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself pure, unstained by the world. So heavenly wisdom is, first of all, pure, as in the Old Testament, a sacrifice was to be spotless and without blemish. So in the new creation, in a redeemed man or woman, you are to be dedicated to God, holy and acceptable, a spiritual sacrifice without blemish. And that's first of all, James says, if you look at verse 17. He's emphatic. Purity is the essence of heavenly wisdom. The second, peaceable, is important. But it's a peaceable purity. And as we'll see when I close this morning's sermon, we cannot elevate peace above purity in Christ's church, or it's not heavenly wisdom. But peace is important. It appears twice more in our text. We're told here the only place in the Bible we're told to be peacemakers is James 3.18. May this be a church of peacemakers. Peacemaking is a prominent feature or quality of the new life of heaven. It's one of the beatitudes of Jesus. It's constantly praised and emphasized. In fact, Elder Will Bausch, when he read from Ephesians 2, it mentioned how Jesus has destroyed the hostility and has established peace. Making peace. Pursuing peace. The word in, in Greek here is irenike. We get the woman's name Irene from this. We also get our English word irenic. making peace. Gentleness, epiakes is the word. Don't insist on every right letter of the law or custom. Instead, be yielding, be generous, be patient, gentle, kind, be tolerant. People are going to step on your toes in the fellowship of Christ's church. For some, that's enough reason to stay away. But heaven's wisdom says, no, I'm providing you with the fruit of God's word, which is heavenly wisdom. It breaks out into a spectrum, one of which is gentleness. And so God enables you to move in and amongst 
the sheep as you get jostled and bumped and toes stepped on and nipped and bit. Elders, pastors, deacons, we're special targets of this. And it takes heaven's wisdom for us to to be gentle in response and not return evil for evil. Open to reason is the fourth light that's coming through this prism. So purity is one. Peace-like is two. Gentleness is three. Open to reason is four. Eupathes, which means obedient. When you're asked to do something, you're open to reason. Sure, I can do that. That's no problem. I can see what you're thinking there, and that makes sense. Let's do it that way. You know, when, when elders and deacons promise in their office, one of the vows that they make is to submit to one another in the Lord. Not to be so tough all the time. Open to reason. Have you ever been in a board meeting where someone is not open to reason? No! I came in with an idea, and I'm going to leave with that idea unchanged. That's some reason that some men refuse to serve on boards. They've sat in a few too many of those meetings. Full of mercy and good fruits is number five. This is the attitude whereby someone shows concern through help and compassion for someone else who's struggling. The last two go together are negatives. Impartial, adiakritos, which means not making distinctions. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're unable to make distinctions, but you don't make bad distinctions. So, among other things, this means that as you're looking at and dealing with problems and situations, there's a kind of impartiality about it. So rich and poor, not a big deal. You can trust a godly leader who has heavenly wisdom because he's not going to favor the rich over the poor or the poor over the rich. There's going to be an impartiality here. I think also racism fits in here. There's a lot of talk in our society today about racism and probably classism is a close second place. A godly leader will be impartial, will not make ungodly distinctions. And then sincerity, this is a good one, an hypocritas, a non-hypocrite. Sincere. This means that a godly leader characterized by heaven's wisdom is genuine. Well, these are your directions for the new way of life that is defined by heaven's wisdom. These are the fruit of God's word, and it's essential to the Christian church. As we close, I want to encourage you as a church, first of all, to learn to choose godly leaders. Speaking of choosing godly leaders, Paul chose Timothy to lead in the church at Ephesus. In his later instructions, in the letter we call 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy of his own testimony in 2 Timothy 3.14. 
But for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God, a godly leader and a teacher, may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what we're looking for in our leaders. And you need to know who those kinds of people are. And you should aspire to be like one. I also want to encourage us as we leave this morning to prioritize purity. To prioritize purity. This is the first of all of James 3.17. He's emphatic. The most important outflow of heaven's wisdom in our lives is purity. The purity leads to a peace-like, ironic manner, but it can't be a substitute for it. This is an important point in a day of compromise when we're constantly tempted as a church and leaders to downgrade or, or water down the truth of God's word as it's preached and taught in the pulpit and in, our, in the various homes. The prophet Jeremiah warned the false prophets of his day by saying, quote, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, Jeremiah 6, 14. Think about a festering wound. Your leaders are called to heal the wounds in your soul. You say, I have trauma. They are called to move into those traumatic places. So you have childhood wounds. Yes, those childhood wounds. I was hurt by the church. Yes, I was, I was hurt or injured by my spouse. I have doubts. And so, so the leaders are called to move into these places of weakness and woundedness and heal them with the word. But here's what you kind of want them to do. You just want them to slap a band-aid on that thing and move along. Peace, you're good, bro. It'll get better. We need leaders that are willing to not heal wounds lightly, but heal them deeply. Caution. Not with a savior complex. God is the healer. But faithful, humble under-shepherds who know that they serve the Lord and that peace relies on purity first and foremost. So the, the word I want to leave you here with is irenic purity. Irenic purity. That's what we're looking for in our leaders. And finally, I want to challenge all of us to be gentle with the sins of others in our lives. Wisdom's meekness, which is James 3.13, is first of all pure, it is true, but it is committed to making peace and being gentle and merciful. Calvin says that James here is bidding us to act calmly and meekly towards our brethren. Otherwise, we are lying and assuming the Christian name. I'm really good, and maybe you can relate to this, at searching out the vices of others. That's another quote from Calvin. I read that. It's like, ooh. I'm great at seeing other people's faults. Mine? I think gentleness is, is, is exhorting me to be less of an expert with other people's faults and more an expert with mine more gentle with other people's faults 
and less gentle with mine. I'd like to close with a Bible verse. It's an interesting verse. It's 3, 13 to 18, but not James, which is my text for this morning, but Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 13 to 18. See if this is inspiring to you as it was to me as we close this morning. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast call her blessed. That's heaven's wisdom. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for giving us encouragement that we need this morning to be and to continue to be, to become the people who you want us to be. Thank you that our Savior Jesus has, has guaranteed that we can become this people by dying and rising again from the dead and being seated at the right hand of God as the Lord of glory. Thank you that we are his servants and thank you that those who are leaders in this church are in a special way, unique way, called to be servants of Christ. But oh Lord, the leaders of Mercy Hill join me in lamenting our poor and sorry performance. We have fallen far short of our high and holy calling. And isn't it, isn't it, Lord, that we haven't asked for the wisdom and then lived out the word which you have given us? So forgive us, Lord, of these faults. And may this season of raising up new leaders be a great season of thoughtful, thankful joy as we see you continue to provide for your church heavenly wisdom and heavenly leaders. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.